Welcome to Resilience Unraveled. Hi everybody and welcome to Resilience Unraveled, a podcast that examines all aspects of personal and organisational resilience. A huge all-encompassing subject that covers the ability to thrive in life by harnessing your cognitive, emotional, physiological and contextual abilities. I share stories from people who have thrived despite remarkable obstacles, as well as highly successful practitioners and experts across a range of topics. And this podcast introduces their amazing stories and expertise, as well as my own reflections, perspectives, strategies and tips, which come from my own synthesis of themes and trends from wider learning. You can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and eBooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com. Then search for Resilience Unraveled. So, let's get started. Enjoy the show. Hi, and welcome back to Resilience Unraveled. And uh, it's always a joy to do something different. And today, we're going to do something different because too infrequently do we get the chance to talk to two people at the same time. I mean not literally at the same time, but the same podcast. And I'm talking to a pair of sisters today, Ronnie Tishner and Jenny Weaver. And they're going to talk to us about all sorts of interesting things to do with siblings. And, uh, well, it's probably best I let them talk about that, but I'm really looking forward to it. So hi to the pair of you. Hello. Jenny's quiet, you see. She's the one who didn't say anything there. So no, I, <laughs> well, I, I, hello. Yes. Hello, fantastic. Well, where, in the, where in the world are the pair of you? Well, I'm in upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains. All right, beautiful. And I'm in Tennessee, north of Nashville. Right, and the wonders of Zoom. There you go, yes. we're all together, aren't we? Isn't <laughs> yeah. fantastic? Well, um, Ronnie, take us um, through a little bit of your story. What is it that um, you're about? What is it you get up to? Well, Jenny and I grew up in a home with um, abuse, addiction, and mental illness. And uh, there's a lot of conversation around those issues these days about recovering from childhood trauma, the impacts of it, and and how it can be difficult, first of all, to realize that you grew up in a home with these dynamics, because denying that these things are going on is very common in households. And sometimes that denial lasts well into adulthood. So Jenny and I took some time to figure out what actually had happened to us in our childhood and um, you know, have spent the last couple of decades trying to recover from from those experiences. And one of the things that we notice as we have you know been out there trying to get information ourselves and educate ourselves about the dynamics that we experience as children is that there's a lot of talk about childhood trauma these days, but not a lot of discussion about what happens to siblings. Mm. And the relationship between siblings is almost always damaged in some way in homes like ours. And it's not their fault, right? It's because of the dynamics the parents set in motion. And in particular, parents often set children against each other in in very, uh, you know, explicit ways. And mm-hmm. so the children can grow up and have really tough relationships with their siblings, be estranged from their siblings and not realize that it's not their fault. And so that's the fact that we were able to come back together and to heal that relationship in addition to healing individually is something we didn't see a lot of people talking about. And so yeah. we're trying to bring that forward in the conversation. That, that's fascinating because I, I see a lot of this in my practice with uh, people who've experienced trauma 
And and you're absolutely spot on that this idea that siblings can have different experiences, especially male-female relationships as well. Um, and you often find that um, one sibling is very much on the side of one parent and the other's on the other side of the other. So I just wonder, Jenny, is that your experience and, and the way it happened to you too, or is it different? I think that's a little different for me. Uh, in our family, I was the youngest of three, and I was the identified patient in the family or the scapegoat, if you use the terms that uh, we talk about with addiction. Uh, Ronnie was the hero. She was the oldest. And so she was, she was kind of set up to succeed, to be the, to be the champion of the family. Um, and my role was to be the problem of the family. Um, I was a very sensitive child, um, very intuitive, naturally intuitive. And so I was constantly trying to read the lay of the, of the mood of the room and, the, and, and our parents um, to try to avoid the next explosion. So, um, so I really didn't feel particularly closer to one parent or the other. They were equally frightening in their ability to, um, to rage and to inflict pain. And so, so in our, in our home, um, I think, you know, I think probably for Ronnie, maybe she can speak for this. She seemed to be at times the confidant of our father. Um, and so there was, there was definitely, you know, this constant loyalty of who do you love more? Who are, who are you, you know, that was going on. Um, and, and that's, probably very common in most families with addiction and abuse issues. Yeah. Is that your thinking as well, Ronnie? Yeah, Jenny's right that we were, we had those different roles that we played. And so it, neither of them were fun, but certainly hers was really terrible. Mm -hmm. um, and there were times when uh, I felt like my father was, as Jenny said, drawing me in as a confidant, especially as I got older into my teen years. Although my mother did that at times as well. And Jenny said, Jenny's right about this idea that it's a kind of a loyalty trap. Um, it also feels sort of icky because at the same time that my father was sort of uh, looking to me for someone to talk to, it was very clear that he was doing this because he felt like he couldn't talk to my mother in that way. And so it was simultaneously flattering and, you know, uh, troublesome, disgusting that I was, there's wedges being put between my mother and, and me by my father. So there, there are all kinds of unhealthy, uncomfortable dynamics that are, are set into motion in homes like ours. Yes. So, so in a sense, what you're sort of saying here is that if you're a single child and you're abused, obviously you, you there is a different set of dynamics obviously going on than have siblings. Do you think do you think it's a situation in a family where there's abuse, that abuse of where all the siblings are involved, or do you think it can be almost confined to one and you, and others are not part of that? I just wonder your views on that. I think it's unusual to have just one sibling be targeted. I think, as Jenny was explaining, you're targeted in different ways. So our parents were verbally and physically abusive to all of us. But because of my role as the hero, I received less of that than my sister did. Jenny got the brunt of that. And that that dynamic only, that disparity only intensified into adulthood. So that we did get to the point where we had to break contact with our parents and our brother. We have a brother in between the two of us yeah. because we kind of realized what was happening in the family and wanted to change the dynamics, wanted to get help. And they did not. 
And as we moved to that point, we probably were in our late 20s, early 30s when that happened. And at that point, I was getting much less of the abuse and Jenny was constantly targeted. I mean, so so the disparities, there can be disparities there, but usually usually everybody is getting some measure of maltreatment mm. in the home. And was your brother getting that as well? He did. Yeah. He he also was targeted, although he did not see it that way. We tried to we tried to point out to him what we saw as the abuse that he had endured growing up and he he couldn't see it. I, I'm not sure why, but um, he sort of, you're talking about taking sides, right? He sort of sided with our parents as we yeah. were trying to pull us all out of denial. Yes. I mean, that, I think that's quite, it's actually quite common. I think that you, you see these different roles and they're almost um, strategic partnerships, aren't they? Relationships that, that builds because actually sometimes the best defense is to, to appear to join the enemy as it were. So yes. um did you find um, that you were experiencing this together at the time and sharing your experiences or was it only later that you began to unpack it and, and you discovered this thing that was going on? How, how did that, how did that um, awareness of each other's role come about? I think it really evolved over time after we both um, married. Uh, we both knew that we wanted very different types of marriage than what we witnessed growing up. Yeah. And and fortunately, we both married really wonderful men. And it was as we were beginning to have our families, as we each had our first child, um, we realized that we were starting to um, talk about parenting yeah. and how we wanted to parent. And and really, I think it all kind of culminated in one weekend when Ronnie really encouraged me to come visit her alone with just my, my eight-month-old daughter at the time. Um, and I think intuitively Ronnie knew that I was really struggling. At that time, um, we were living with my parents. My husband was overseas in Desert Storm. And um, we didn't have a lot of direct communication with each other at that time. We were still entrenched in part in the denial and the and what therapists would call triangular communication, which meant in order to maintain control, somebody in the family has to be controlling the communication. And that's what triangular communication is. So at that time, most of our communication was running through our mother, who kept a tight lid on what she decided to share. And sometimes she would share what, what we talked about that wasn't accurate at all. Um, but it was all part of maintaining loyalty and keeping us in line. So this weekend was a big deal for me to go visit her alone was a big deal. And I received a lot of flack for it um, from my mother and father. Um, but it turned out to be an opportunity for us to really open up. She could, as soon as I walked in the door, Ronnie said, Jenny, what's wrong? She could tell that I was, I was struggling with severe depression. Um, and it just kind of evolved over that weekend that we just spilled the beans and really stepped out of that denial and and um, broke that taboo of silence and started to talk about our family dynamics and how my parents were treating me. It's, and that it's, it's often the case. Thing. It's often the case is that that it's each individual sibling, I guess, treats it as a secret, so you don't share. And it's this sort of a, it's it's the it's the waste of the futility of all those years without realizing that somebody else in your that you had a supporter, that you had a, an ally 
And that mm -hmm. must be part of the sickening sense of waste that comes from this process, I guess. It is because you're, you're so entrenched in the denial and you're, and you're following these ever-changing rules of control because that's what it's about. Yeah. It's about controlling each of the children. And we, we realized as we started talking to each other how isolated we were from each other emotionally, it, verbally. We didn't really talk much directly to each other about anything of great substance about what was going on because you are conditioned to yeah. keep silent. You are conditioned in, into believing that you know, you're, you're given the message, even after a horrible beating, you're given the message that you're not hurt. Stop crying. I didn't mean to hurt you, yeah. you know, so, so shut up and Big don't talk. Crying. Exactly. And, yeah. and so, so when you're conditioned from literally infancy on, it's, it takes a lot to break out of those patterns and to, to one, recognize those patterns, but then to talk about them yeah. and to have somebody to talk about them with. So a, a, a therapist who is very well-versed in abuse and addiction, mental illness, dynamics in a family is, is imperative yeah. um, to, to start unpacking it there. But to have a sibling to validate the memories and to say, yeah, I was there. I remember that. You're not yeah. imagining it. It really was that bad. Um, is, is a, I mean, it accelerates your healing process yeah. dramatically. Yeah. And that's what I just can't. I can't thank my sister enough for being there for me and validating me because that helped the trajectory of my healing accelerate exponentially. Yeah. And, I, and I guess it's, it's one of the major challenges for you both is um, the relationship with your current partners, because of course they're taking on someone who's been through this sort of experience. And, and I guess, you know, for some people that creates trust issues or, commitment issues or whatever that may may be and also this need to not have the relationship you had with your parents so you almost have to construct something which is completely you know a figment almost of, of your imagination because you can't use your experience so how how do how do you how do you begin to um work with your partners and sort of share this issue and begin to develop that relationship and parenting styles which we, we talked a lot in the very beginning, even before we were married, about what we wanted, we both recognized that there were patterns with his father's um, anger issues and my father and mother's anger issues. That's what we called them in the early years. Um, but it wasn't until I started going through counseling very early in our marriage, before I even had children, that I started unpacking some of what had happened to me. Yeah. And he was very supportive and he he was a very healthy and loving person in in his own right um and we just wanted to work on creating the most loving relationship that we could with each other and then when we started having children to be the best parents that we could to 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 parent as consciously as we could yes and it's and it's i don't know how to put this it's not like you so the pair of you have gone on and pursued really successful careers i think um I think one of you are a doctor, aren't you? You've got a PhD or something, or one of you's. Yes. You both yes. got, you know, unparalleled careers. So you're one of those, I mean, we're a resilience podcast here and we talk a lot about resilience and you're a, an example of people who have not been defined by your past, but you have significantly learned from it. And I think that's one of the things of resilience, isn't it? It's, 
your 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 situation or your circumstances can act as an enabler or a disabler to the rest of your life. Um, so I just wondered if you could unpack that a little bit for me, Ronnie, if you would. Sure. Um, you're right. I do have a PhD in sociology. Um, I am in academics and my specialty is in family studies. It's probably not an accident. And one of the, you know, I think I've taken, and and I would say Jenny as well, taken what we were given as children and tried to figure out how to not only live our lives in a healthier manner, but to use that information to help other people. So I teach a course called Power and Violence in the Family, where we talk about dynamics of abuse in, um, in our society, but then in, in family relationships. And, and to me, it is the most important class that I teach. It's a class I enjoy the most, which sounds nuts to people when I tell them that, but it's because we don't talk about these issues. They're swept under the rug. We, as a society, we help people stay in denial about what they've experienced because we don't talk about it. And so I, I, you know, every, every time I teach this class, I'm not only, you know, people will come to discover that they have their own abusive backgrounds and it might propel them into their own healing process. But the other thing I emphasize for for my students is if you take nothing from this class, you will at least be able to recognize the signs of someone who has suffered in this way. And all it takes is one light, right? One person to be a light for that individual, whether it's a child or whether it's an adult, and you can do that. Yeah. So I try to empower them to make a difference in the world as well. And that that is very healing for me to be able to do that. And then, of course, Jenny and I telling our story together is another way to do that. And Jenny, in her own profession, has done the same thing. Right, Jen? Yes, I, I went down the road of, of becoming a family nurse practitioner. And I can't tell you how many times of the last 26 years that I've had a, a, especially female patients come in for migraine headaches or low chronic low back pain and then break down crying and start telling me about their abusive childhood, you know, or an abusive relationship that they were in. And, and they were flabbergasted that they're like, I did, I had no intention of coming in here and talking about this. And I said, I'm honored that you feel safe in my presence and you know, that, that I'm here to help you. Um, so I, I've been put in, in that situation many times, and I'm, I'm truly grateful that I've been able to help guide other people on their healing path. Yes. And it's, and it's an important thing to say that, because there, there's a risk here, isn't there? And uh, that we characterize a lot of men as being evil, victim, you know, victim bullies, abusers and such like. And there's a huge amount of men who are actually quite normal, and then there's, there's a, the bell curve, isn't it? There? There's a lot of men who are really lovely as well, and mm-hmm. and it's it's it seems a horrible thing of statistics to be what are the bottom end of that bell curve where you're dealing with abusive people and such like. But the fact that you've used this as a sort of springboard to help other people, and you know, one of the things we say in resilience is the best thing you can do is to actually share your message and actually you learn from the process of sharing. You learn more about yourself in the process of enabling and helping other people. So it's, I think it's really lovely. So tell me about the decision to write the book. Why, what, because as someone who's written the book themselves, it's not an easy decision, Never mind following through. <laughs> right, right. Well, <laughs> well, as we said at the beginning, we just felt like there, there, we've done a lot of reading on this, this topic and it was very helpful to us to hear other people tell their stories because then we could see some of what, it helped us name what happened to us by someone else showing what happened to them. And 
as we went along, we, we learned from people. We had, you know, therapists tell us, you know, it is really, really unusual for the hero and the scapegoat to become as close as you, you two have. And so, you know, so we thought of it as a miracle, but then we started to think, well, you know, there's probably some kind of formula here that we could share with other people in terms of what we did on our path to increase the likelihood that other people could heal their sibling relationship as well. So that was one of the real um, motivating forces for us is that we felt no one else was telling this story. And we wanted to make what others were telling us is unusual in our case, possible, more common for other people. And it's interesting because one of the things you seem to talk about in the in the book is this idea of the um, uh, roles where kids in the family get pigeonholed. So you have the golden child, the scapegoat, the mascot, uh, and the invisible child. So I wonder if you could just break those down a little bit for us. Sure. Well, I'll talk a bit about the hero, and Jenny, if you can then fill in with the scapegoat. How's that? So, so the hero, the hero's job is to distract from the family in a particular way. Um, The hero's job is to be super achieving, very high achieving. And there's a lot of pressure placed on this child. So it's not just that you are a good student. You have to also excel in sports or music or these kinds of things. And, And in my case, I felt like I couldn't just be really, really excellent at something. I had to do it better than anybody else. I had to do it sooner at a younger age in a faster time frame. You know, you just really feel this intense pressure to be as excellent as possible. And so the, my job was to then, if anybody realized what was going on, right, the family came under any scrutiny, there, there's something not right going on in this family. My parents could point to me as the hero and say, well, there can't possibly be anything wrong with us as parents. Look at this wonderful child that we created. And so there are other roles as well. There's the invisible child, which is often the middle child. That was our brother. Yeah. Um, the, his job was just to go away and not make too many demands. And that's exactly what he did. Mm-hmm. In fact, at times our parents would say, why can't you be more like your brother? He doesn't ask anything yeah. of us, yes. you know? Yes. And, and then, in a sense, he becomes a different form of hero. Yes. Yes. And then, of course, there's the scapegoat, Jenny. And so the scapegoat's job is to carry the family's pain. The scapegoat is the, is the one that therapists would call the identified patient. Um, the problem in the family. And so the scapegoat carries all of the family garbage. The family dumps on the scapegoat, tells the scapegoat what a mess the scapegoat is. Um, You know, the favorite joke in the family was everything would be fine if Jenny would just get her shit together. You know, if we could just find a big enough bucket for Jenny to get her shit together in. So, um, you know, any any of my accomplishments were... were, um, just not good enough. And, and so, so I, I quit trying, you know, I, I was told that I was a bright student, but I was lazy. Well, I also had learning disabilities, um, language comprehension disabilities. Um, so, so early on, I was put in the slow reading group and things like that, that just perpetuated my scapegoat role. Um, and so, I mean, the fact that I went on to college is, is unusual. Um, I should have, I should have given up, but I, but I didn't. And, and it was in my teen years that I learned through friends at school, um, through a couple of incidents that, that would have, of course, embarrassed me and caused me to cry. Um, It turned into an opportunity for laughter. And I learned from that and thought, you know, that feels a lot better than crying. 
going off by myself and crying somewhere, you know? Um, so, so I started using humor um, somewhere around the age of 14 or so at home to try to diffuse the tension. So I then that worked, you know? Uh, so I, so I still was the scapegoat, but also started using humor to try to help um, diffuse some of that, some of that rage mm -hmm. and mascot role, which yeah. is a mascot role. Yeah. So, so I, I, I took on that role by choice. Well, that's um, interesting. So you're almost implying that people can change roles. Because well, you, you, sort of, uh, mm -hmm. you were saying at first people are, are forced into a role, but you don't have to be forced into that role forever because I guess you have to, you have to be, have the ability to play all four roles, I guess. An only child possibly would. Um, I, right. I, was still, I was still very clearly the scapegoat of the family. That never went away. Yeah. But I was able to use humor at times to diffuse some of the tension. Yeah. Interesting. So you've obviously written this book. Tell us more about it. Tell us what it's called. Tell us, um, well, tell us what you want. Sure. Go ahead, Ryan. So I'm, just, I'm just buying it at the moment because uh, it sounds fascinating. Well, the, the book is called Healing Begins With Us, Breaking the Cycle of Trauma and Abuse and Rebuilding the Sibling Bond. Yeah. And so in that book, we, we tell the arc of our story to um, help people who are at the just at the beginning maybe of questioning did i come from a family with these kinds of dynamics uh and, and i think a key question would be if your family relationships are an ongoing source of pain there's a decent chance that some of this dysfunction we're talking about was present in your home and so we tell our story to help people identify and we have some very unusual things that happen to us over the course of our childhood so we don't expect others will have experienced those things exactly, but we try to focus on the feelings. What did it feel like to grow up in a home with addiction, abuse, and mental illness? And so we do that piece of it. And then we talk a bit about how did we break the cycle? How did we find loving partners? We, we, talk, we have a section in the book where we talk very explicitly about finding someone who's not like dad. And then we talk about how we, as Jenny said, very consciously examined how we were parented and then talked about how we wanted to parent our children. And imperfectly at first, because we were still in denial when we first had our children. Um, so we tell that piece. And then we talk about just the arc of our recovery journey. What are the things that we've tried? Um, Jenny mentioned therapy. We also tried 12-step groups like Al-Anon. Um, we've tried other... Uh, uh, spiritual explorations, because once you understand what's happened to you cognitively and emotionally, there are still other layers of healing to move through. And so we just talk about what we've done over the last 25, 30, no, 30 years is too many, 20 to 25 years, I guess. As we age yourselves. <laughs> okay. And if, if we wanted to find, I, I think it's fascinating. I just um, downloaded myself a copy, so I'll have a good old read. Um, because I think it's also quite interesting to to look at people who are experiencing current problems in their own relationships who might not realize that the existing relationship actually is living out or acting out stuff they've not realized was part of their childhood. And I think you, we only really have attachment theory to explain some of that. And I think what you're talking about is something a little bit different. So that's interesting. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so tell us, tell us how, um, tell people how they can get hold of you, the book. Tell us more about your contact details. So you can find really, you can link to all of our information on our website. 
which is www.ronnieandjenny.com. So R-O-N-N-I-A-N-D-J-E-N-N-I-E. So we have a link to a podcast we've been doing for several seasons now. There's a link to where you can find the book. Um, there's a quiz that you can take if, if you're listening to us and some of these things are ringing bells for you and you're wondering, um, you know, is this potentially relevant to my own experience? You can take a short quiz there and and that might uh, spark some some thought. So there's a lot of good information there. And just and just spell that um, website again. Um, it's R O R O N I, isn't it? R O N N I, two N's. Yeah, but no E. But no E. But Jenny has me on it. <laughs> That's right. I was just um, I was just checking the link and came to somebody else's <laughs> website. Yep. Yes. <laughs> Different Ronnie and Jenny. Right. Uh, brilliant. Excellent. But um, and I think the Survivor quiz is great. I think it's lovely. I think it's really useful and. Um, Brilliant. Well, look, thank you so much for your time today. I think you've really shown a light on on some of the quite thought-provoking stuff. And I think uh, I'd like to explore this in a bit more detail another time. But um, for today, I really thank you so much for spending time with us and just opening the, the door a crack on mm -hmm. this sort of subject. And I think it's so right. There's very little, I can't think of a single other thing really written about siblings, you know, when I'm sitting here racking our brains. And I think for most therapists, we tend to deal with indiv the individual's sibling we don't tend to deal with the whole right. crew uh, right. or we'll get you know we'll work through a family that often happens so it's quite rare to see them all together so i think that's that's really quite interesting and i you know i thank you so much for your time oh thank it's been you. our pleasure Great. it's been a pleasure yes. you take care hi everybody i hope you found that episode useful and interesting Feedback is always welcomed, and if you are in the mood to subscribe to us or even leave a comment on iTunes or Stitcher, that would be amazing. If you want to suggest ideas or even people you would like me to interview, then reach out to us at qedod.com forward slash contact. As I said earlier, you can go to qedod.com forward slash podcast for show notes or follow the links. And you can go to qedod.com forward slash extras to access offers, tools and resources, including free articles and ebooks. For those of you that would be interested in supporting our work and contributing more proactively, you can find our new Patreon page at patreon.com, then search for Resilience Unraveled. I look forward to being in your ear next time around. Take care.